I thought often during my years in the White House of an admonition that we received in our small school in Plains, Georgia, from a beloved teacher, Miss Judy Coleman. She often said, we must adjust to changing times, but still hold to unchanging principles. Hello and welcome to Unchanging Principles. I am your host, Josh Carter, and I'm President Carter's grandson. Now, I usually start my podcast with that exact same line from my grandfather's presidential inaugural address. But that audio clip is from my grandfather's Nobel Peace Prize lecture. I wanted to start with that line from his Peace Prize lecture because I found that I've been thinking about that lecture pretty much constantly since Russia started its war in Ukraine. We're now past the one-month milestone, and I've been thinking about it pretty much constantly, like whenever I'm reading the news or reading articles about what's happening in Ukraine or looking at war reports or looking at the Telegram app. It's always there. It's always in the background. Now, of course, I don't have the entire speech memorized, but there's one line in particular that stands out just as brightly today as it did when my grandfather first said it in Oslo on December 10th, 2002, almost 20 years ago. Here's that line. Ladies and gentlemen, war may sometimes be a necessary evil, but no matter how necessary, it is always evil, never a good. We will not learn how to live together in peace by killing each other's children. Yeah, we will not learn how to live together in peace by killing each other's children. Now, it's the politicians that go to war. It's the senior officers, the generals, and the admirals, and the commanders that execute the war. But it's the country's children that strap on rifles and put their boots in the ground and get killed. Now, before I get too into the Ukraine-Russia war, which I hesitate to do because as soon as I say anything about it, you know, it's obsolete within 12 hours, but I wanted to start by telling you the story of my grandfather winning the Nobel Peace Prize, since, you know, that's, that's a unique experience. So, uh, most of the time, people do not know if they are nominated for the Nobel Prize. Of course, the people that do nominate candidates may tell the press whatever they want, but the Nobel Committee itself holds the list of nominations secret for 50 years. So, early in the morning of October 11th, 2002, I mean early, sometime before 5 a.m., my grandfather got a phone call from a man named Gunnar Berge. Gunnar Berge was the head of the Norwegian Nobel Committee, and he informed my grandfather that he won the 2002 Nobel Peace Prize for, quote, his decades of untiring effort to find peaceful solutions to international conflicts, to advance democracy and human rights, and to promote economic and social development. It was not a long phone call, which is extremely typical for my grandparents. And at the time, I was a freshman at Georgia Tech. I had a landline in my dorm, and it was connected to the cheapest phone I could get at Kmart, which was right next to my ear. So sometime around 5.30 in the morning on a Friday, the phone rings, and I answer it like a college student would at 5.30 in the morning. Oh, It was my grandmother. And the phone call went something like this. Hi, Josh. It's Mom. Jimmy just won the Nobel Peace Prize, and we couldn't wait to tell you. We love you. Goodbye. Click. You know, so I was up. I remember being extremely excited, and the first thing I did was try to wake up my roommate. Mike! Mike! 
Mike, my grandpa just won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> it's 5.30, and Mike's like, huh? Okay. He rolled over, went back to sleep. And I told him again after he woke up, and I got a proper reaction. But anyway, as the details came in, one of the things that became very clear is that I was going to be in Oslo during exam week at my first semester at Georgia Tech. So that meant I have to take exams early or late. Um, and I knew I was going to face resistance, but it's one of those battles that like, I knew I was going to win <laughs> before I started. Um, and I hadn't been around campus telling everybody that I knew that I was Jimmy Carter's grandson or anything. I mean, it came up. It always comes up. But I was at Georgia Tech as a freshman in classes of 300 students. I mean, my professors knew me by my student number. And they had no idea who I was. So <laughs> first time I meet these professors was to tell them I needed them to move the exam for me. And it played out remarkably similar for every professor that I went to. I went to them and said, okay, uh, hi, my name is Josh Carter. I have an extremely important family obligation that I cannot miss. And I just learned about it today. And it's going to be during exams. So I need to either take my exam early or after I get home. Professor would say, no, <laughs> we're not moving the exam for you. Uh, you can tell your family you're not going to be there or you can ask them to move the event. And I'd say, okay. Well, my grandfather is Jimmy Carter and he just won the Nobel Peace Prize. So I'm going. The award ceremony is during exam week. So I need to take the exam either early or after I get home. Professor would respond, oh, yeah, that's different. And I had one professor that said, you know, I'm retiring next year. And I thought that I have heard everything. And now I have. My grandfather's Peace Prize was not for his Camp David Accords. Now, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1978 for forming the peace deal between Israel and Egypt. My grandfather brokered that deal. It was The Camp David Accords was the ultimate international policy achievement of my grandfather's presidency. I mean, the Accords ended a war between two nations with a peace treaty that has never been violated in 44 years. So my grandfather did not win the Nobel Prize in 1978 due to a technicality within the Nobel Committee. And after they awarded the Nobel Peace Prize to Jimmy Carter in 2002, the Nobel Committee admitted that they were somewhat embarrassed that Jimmy Carter was not included with Begin and Sadat. But they've since fixed that issue. So there was this feeling among the committee members uh, of being uh, a certain sense of being uh, guilty of overlooking uh, Carter. And there was this technicality which prevented him from getting the prize uh, in 78. It was a combination of 1978, his long and hard work as a very, very active uh, ex-president, and then uh, circumstances coming together in 2002. I'm very happy that we have finally put this to rest and that Jimmy Carter has indeed received the Nobel Peace Prize. And for extremely selfish reasons, I'm very glad that they waited. <laughs> you know, uh, the trip to Oslo was a whirlwind. It was amazing. We were gone for four days, which included a day in Stockholm. Now, every other Nobel Prize is awarded in Stockholm, Sweden. But the Nobel Peace Prize is awarded in Oslo, Norway. And if you look online to, to figure out why that's the case, there's no real definitive answer um, online, or even from the Nobel Committee. But one of the reasons that we were told that the Nobel Peace Prize awarded in Norway instead of Sweden is because the Nobel Committee honored the peaceful independence of Norway from Sweden in 1905. Now, real briefly, in, in 1814, Norway lost a brief war with Sweden and became a Swedish territory. 
And Norway still kept their own government, but they were recognized as a part of Sweden. Well, in June of 1905, the Norwegian government passed a law declaring themselves independent from Sweden. And the Swedish king obviously rejected this law. Uh, but in response, the entire government of Norway resigned. The entire government. So the Swedish king recognized that he has lost control of Norway. And he allowed the Norwegian people to vote for independence. The Norwegian independence movement received a 99.95% yes vote. And then Sweden accepted it. It was a bloodless, peaceful independence. And that's why Norway hosts the Nobel Peace Prize. Anyway, uh, in December 2002, my family arrived in Norway. There was 22 of us. Uh, we had one day of sightseeing in Norway. And uh, the thing that stuck in my head uh, the most was we went and saw this unearthed, rebuilt, like legitimate Viking ship. It was really cool. Um, it was very old. Um, you know, we took a bus tour around Norway, which was, which was great. Um, I remember it being very cold. I don't actually remember it, the cold itself, but I very much remember my brother, Jeremy, uh, talking to the media about it. And his only media clip that he had from the entire trip of Norway was that it was cold. Here's Jeremy. Another grandkid is not too impressed. No, it's too cold. No one to sleep. <laughs> so we didn't actually uh, see that uh, live time. We heard about it, got it back to us. Um, yeah, thanks, Jeremy. We gave him a lot of crap for that. But <laughs> uh, but it was a family reunion. You know, we had, like I said, 22 of us. Uh, there was a lot of Carter people from the White House, obviously. Uh, some very longtime friends. Uh, the arc of the trip was that we arrived on the 9th. We went sightseeing. We had the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony on the day of the 10th. And then that evening, we had a concert. The headliners of the concert were Santana and Willie Nelson. And I met Anthony Hopkins there, and he was, he was there. I really don't know why, but it was really cool. Um, my dad and my brothers and I then walked through the snow after the concert to go to the after party, which we almost missed because we went to the wrong hotel first. But the after party was a blur. But Jeremy got to hang out and, and party with Michelle Branch all night, which was cool. Um, I mean, this is 2002. I was a freshman in college, so Jeremy was a sophomore in high school. And then he rolled back into school with pictures of Michelle Branch on his arm, which uh, was a lucky guy. So after Oslo, I'm sorry, after, you know, after Oslo, we went to took a bus tour to Stockholm. Now, Oslo is cool, but Stockholm was one of the coolest cities that I've ever been to in my life. Now, I don't know what about it that was so cool I just everything like the layout of the city the architecture it was all striking I really want to go back to, to Stockholm we went to the Vasa Museum and that had a huge Viking ship a much newer one that, that was reconstructed the one in Oslo was an older one it was like a schooner but this one in, in Vasa was this giant three-masted ship I know one of the last things that we did in Stockholm is that we all went to a bar that was made entirely of ice. The chairs were ice, the tables were ice, the benches were ice, the glasses, the drink glasses, shot glasses, they were all ice. There was a great family picture somewhere of us all dressed in these silver fur-lined jackets at the ice bar in Stockholm. So after that, we, uh, we headed back to Oslo uh, to go home. Now, normally that's like a six-hour bus drive between Oslo and, and Stockholm. But we left Stockholm and we hit a blizzard. And most of us are from Georgia. Now, we've seen snow before, but we've never seen a Scandinavian <laughs> blizzard before. And it was dark. You know, sunset is like 4 o'clock. 
And the bus driver couldn't see more than like 10 feet, but nobody could. So everyone on the road, who's much more used to it, uh, just <laughs> found a speed and they kept moving. So I don't remember exactly how long that bus ride was, but if it was 12 or 15 hours, I wouldn't be surprised. But one of the great things about traveling with Jimmy Carter, and especially traveling with Jimmy Carter in Oslo after he received the Nobel Peace Prize, is you get to drive right up to the plane and get on the plane. Um, now, my grandfather has never had a plane of his own, except for, of course, Air Force One. Uh, so we flew Delta. And that was the trip. It was an excellent trip. But, of course, the whole reason we were in Oslo was so my grandfather could receive the Nobel Peace Prize. And the prize was awarded to him for the tireless work that he did post-presidency through the Carter Center by waging peace. It is with a deep sense of gratitude that I accept this prize. I'm grateful to my wife, Rosalind, to my colleagues at the Carter Center, and to many others who continue to seek an end to violence and suffering throughout the world. The scope and character of our center's activities are perhaps unique, but in many other ways, they are typical of the work being done by hundreds of non-governmental organizations that strive for human rights and peace. You know, and as I've said many times on my podcast, the three pillars of the Carter Center are waging peace, fighting disease, and building hope. Now, under the waging peace pillar, my grandfather, you know, he fought for democracy by helping countries transition from dictatorships or warlords or other autocracies to democracy. He's negotiated ceasefires. He's monitored elections. Now, the Nobel Committee reminds us that peace is not just the absence of war. It is the active measures taken to prevent war. It is a lot of very delicate work. You know, and I've kept that thought in my mind as I was watching President Biden in, their, in early February talk about Russian troops staging on the border of Ukraine. But when he was talking about that, you know, I even took it as more of a side story back at the time. It's kind of hard to think about the time before the war now. But I could imagine that Russia was positioning around Ukraine to denounce NATO or uh, that there would be some small territorial disputes in an area that the West didn't know very well with political pressures that were completely foreign to us. But I could not imagine the audacity of a full-scale assault. I mean, nobody that I talked to thought Russia was actually going to invade. But Joe Biden was clearly convinced, and he was right. You know, our American intelligence was spot on. And I thought that President Biden's strategy of publicly producing and explaining our military intelligence and broadcasting Vladimir Putin's troop and armament movements was smart and savvy. I mean, I can't think of another time where the president publicly exposed our military intelligence to ruin an enemy's strategy. Except, I don't know, maybe President Kennedy revealing the American intelligence that proved the U Soviet Union was planting nuclear weapons in Cuba in 1962. Now, up until the war with Ukraine started, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis was the last time that the world felt a tangible anxiety of nuclear warfare. And now it's in the news a lot. But now we are a, more than a month into this war, and it is clear that Vladimir Putin has miscalculated every single thing about this war. I mean, so do we. <laughs> uh, in the run-up to the invasion, there was a near-unanimous consensus 
from analysts across the globe that an invasion of Ukraine would be a quick tactical victory, and then Russia would be stuck trying to hold it, you know, like Vietnam. But a month into this war has proven that the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people are just incredibly brave and patriotic and competent. It's clear that Vladimir Putin vastly underestimated the ability of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to rise to the occasion and galvanize the country against the Russian occupiers and to bring the world behind him. I mean, it's hard to think of a starker dichotomy than a press conference with Volodymyr Zelensky where he grabs his own chair and sits in front of the press pool in some small conference room in Kiev, and Vladimir Putin, figuratively and literally alone, at the end of a giant table in some cavernous Soviet rotunda. But the Russian invasion of Ukraine proved that the Russian military was not the powerhouse that we all remembered from the Cold War. This is not the Cold War Soviet Army, or should I say the first Cold War Soviet Army. Their army is inefficient and under-equipped, and it's really hard to understand what their strategy is. I mean, to date, the NATO's assessments that Soviets have lost, I don't know, 50,000 soldiers to death or injury or capture in, in, in a month. And for reference, America lost 2,401 soldiers in Afghanistan, America's longest war, spanning 20 years. This is a bloodbath. But it proves two things. You know, first, Western, specifically American weapons, are extremely effective. There's a lot of legitimate criticism of America's military industrial complex, but my first career out of Georgia Tech was at Lockheed Martin Aeronautics. And I worked on the F-22, the F-35, the C-5, and the C-130. And over every single doorway in that aircraft manufacturing building, was a giant banner with Lockheed Martin's logo with our slogan, we never forget who we're working for. That means, you know, we work for America. We work for our armed forces. We work for our allies. We work for democracy. We work for freedom. And as we see today, you know, that requires defense. Now, second, on the Ukrainian side, we have a military led by Vladimir Zelensky who is valiantly staying in the middle of the fight, you know, in the middle of Kiev, rallying his troops in the country and the world around him. And on the Russian side, we have Vladimir Putin that has lied to his own troops about the purpose of the war. He's lied about the goals of the war. He's lied to a lot of his ground troops about even the fact that they're going to war. And he continues to lie to his own citizens that are even at war. I mean, it's disgusting, but man, if it doesn't cement the value of truth and the difference that morale makes in warfare. It is not going to surprise listeners to my podcast that I am against war. You know, everybody in my family is against war. During the early days of the Iraq war, my uncle put a bumper sticker on his car that says, I'm already against the next war. You know, it's still there. There was never reason for him to take that bumper sticker off. And don't get me wrong, I support our military. I support a strong defense. And at this world-changing juncture, I'm proud and glad that I'm an American citizen with our military, with our intelligence, with our capabilities. However, I strongly support all of the absolutely unprecedented sanctions that Joe Biden has been able to lead and enact with the entire world behind him, as opposed to going to war. These are unprecedented sanctions. We have ruined the Russian economy over this. The ruble is absolutely worthless. We, meaning the West, not just the United States, are seizing luxury items and money from oligarchs that built and then milked the Russian government, the Russian people. 
Russia is now the most sanctioned country in the world with over 5,500 individual sanctions placed on the Russian government and members of that government. Russia has more sanctions than Iran, than Syria, than North Korea, than Venezuela, than Myanmar, Cuba. Now, Cuba just has a couple hundred sanctions, and they are the seventh most sanctioned country in the world. I mean, it seems quaint compared to what we're doing to Russia. And I'm absolutely amazed with how quickly we, you know, the entire West, has reacted. And on top of all that, all the companies that have fled Russia. I mean, if you've heard of that company, it has probably stopped doing business in Russia. There are no Western oil companies, no auto manufacturers, no luxury brands. I've been watching this unfold on the Telegram app and uh, seeing as much Russian video as I can find. I've been watching shopping malls empty. I'm seeing lines of cars as long as I can see lining up for their last McDonald's. 30 years of economic collaboration and investment into Russia vanished essentially overnight. And now it is going to be absolutely miserable and likely fatal for a lot of people that don't have anything to do with this fight. And that's a specific point my grandfather warned about in his Noah Peace Prize lecture. We must also strive to correct the injustice of economic sanctions that uh, seek to penalize abusive leaders, but all too often inflict punishment on those who are already suffering from the abuse. Now that, of course, is the risk of sanctions. If you impose sanctions and it does not uh, get the desired outcome that we need, then you can actually end up emboldening the leader who is personally immune from the sanctions, and then you just actually end up hurting the people that don't have anything to do with the fight. We are not there yet with Russia. Sanctions are a diplomatic tool or a diplomatic weapon that are used to de-escalate a conflict. And this works precisely because you can remove them. You can never unbomb a city. You can never unkill a civilian population under siege. That is escalation. That only moves in one direction. But you can turn back on a banking relationship. You can start buying gasoline again. But through this war, it is extremely important to remember that the United States' position in this conflict is to protect the American people. The United States' role in this conflict is to generate de-escalation pressure so that we can avoid direct confrontation with Russia. My grandfather spoke about this in his Nobel lecture as well. Later, as president and as commander-in-chief of our military forces, I was one of those who bore the sobering responsibility of maintaining global stability during the height of the Cold War as the world's two superpowers confronted each other. Both sides understood that an unresolved political altercation or a serious misunderstanding could lead to a nuclear holocaust. Yeah, that's extremely delicate. Joe Biden's job is to protect America, and it is not to protect the people of Ukraine. Now, we help Ukraine because they're an ally. We protect Ukraine because of the Budapest Memorandum. We help Ukraine because they're an enemy of our enemy, and that makes them our friends. We help Ukraine because they are a democracy trying to be overtaken by a brutal, vicious, and overbearing autocracy. It is a fight for democracy. And to be frank, you know, with the full American government by the people spirit that I have, the we protect Ukraine because the American citizens demand that we protect Ukraine. But with that in mind, I feel like it's important to reiterate that the goal of the sanctions are de-escalation. And I've heard complaint after complaint from American and from Ukrainians, most recently even uh, Vladimir Zelensky, 
that the sanctions are not enough, that we need to engage militarily. We need to impose a no-fly zone, which will require Americans to shoot down Russians. I'm absolutely certain we can do that, but that's a nauseating discussion. And here's Volodymyr Zelensky. I'm proud to greet you from Ukraine, from our capital city of Kiev, a city that is under missile and airstrikes from Russian troops every day, just like many other cities and communities in our beautiful country, which found themselves in the worst war since World War II. Russian troops have already fired nearly 1,000 missiles at Ukraine. This is a terror that Europe has not seen, has not seen for 80 years, and we are asking for a reply, for an answer uh, to this uh, terror from the whole world. Is this a lot to ask for, to create a no-fly zone over Ukraine to save people? Today, today it's not enough to be the leader of the nation. Today it takes to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Now, the sanctions that we, and again, I mean the world, have put on Russia are designed to put extreme pressure on Vladimir Putin to change course. They are designed to ruin Vladimir Putin's ability to wage this war. And if that doesn't work, they're also designed to create enough pressure on the Russian citizens to force their government to achieve that same goal. Yes, this takes time, and it is god-awful to watch. And it means that the Russian meat grinder will be active in Ukraine until the sanctions all fall together, or until it escalates. So I understand when Zelensky's asked for fighter jets. I understand when the Ukrainians ask us to close the skies. I understand their bewilderment when America says that we will not engage Russia directly to avoid World War III. The Ukrainians are seeing Ukraine as World War III's ground zero. What do you mean avoid World War III? This is World War III. We've seen bomb attorney wards. We've seen the bombing of that theater that you can still see in giant bus-sized capital letters has the Russian word for children. I mean, I get it. War is always evil, and it is hard to sit still while we let the sanctions do their job. Sanctions take time, but it's extremely important to remember that so does war. And there are a lot of reasons to oppose war, and every time that I hear my grandfather talk about war, he talks about his religious faith. He talks about Jesus Christ, and he reminds us that Christians worship the Prince of Peace. The unchanging principles of life predate modern times. I worship Jesus Christ, whom we Christians consider to be the Prince of Peace. And also in his Nobel lecture, he quoted a man named Ralph Bunch. Now, Ralph Bunch was the first African-American and the first person of African descent to win the Nobel Peace Prize, which he did in 1950, for his instrumental work in creating the United Nations, which was created to avoid war. Here's my grandfather quoting Ralph Punch. To suggest that war can prevent war is a base play on words and a despicable form of warmongering. He said, the objective of any who sincerely believe in peace clearly must be to exhaust every honorable recourse in the effort to save the peace. The world has had ample evidence that war begets only conditions that beget 
for the war, unquote. It's almost impossible to look at the pictures of the four million refugees, terrified, without a home, sometimes kids without parents. Soldiers and civilians and children killed and maimed in a senseless war that Vladimir Putin can't possibly win. I mean, we've, we've seen cities in Ukraine that are utterly destroyed, like Mariupol. And I couldn't sleep tonight that the Russian tanks were firing on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. You know, it's just gut-wrenching to watch. But that said, one of the main reasons that I don't like war, one of the main reasons why I oppose every war of aggression, is because generally it just doesn't work. It's hard to think of many examples in modern history where a war of aggression worked out the way leadership said it would. A week before Germany invaded Poland in 1939, Adolf Hitler ordered his commanders to his house in Oberstalsburg, where he laid out a plan for a world controlled by Germans. Now, Adolf Hitler said this to his commanders, quote, The decision to attack Poland was arrived at in spring. Since the autumn of 1938, and since I have realized that Japan will not go with us unconditionally, and that Mussolini is endangered by that nitwit of a king and that treacherous founder of a crown prince, I decided to go with Stalin. After all, there are only three great states in the world. Stalin, I, and Mussolini. And Mussolini is the weakest, for he has been able to break the power, neither of the crown nor of the church. Stalin and I are the only ones who visualize the future, so in a few weeks hence I shall stretch out my hand to Stalin at the common German-Russian frontier, and with him undertake to redistribute the world. Our strength consists in our speed and in our brutality. Colonel General von Braswich has promised me to bring the war against Poland to close within a few weeks. Had he reported to me that he needs two years or even only one year, I should not have given the command to march and should have allied myself temporarily with England instead of Russia, for we cannot conduct a long war. To be sure, a new situation has arisen. I experienced these poor worms to Laudier and Chamberlain in Munich. They will be too cowardly to attack. They won't go beyond a blockade. End quote. And it was with that speech that Adolf Hitler started World War II, which he lost. In 1979, the Soviet Union invaded their neighbor, Afghanistan, under the auspices of holding up their Soviet-Afghanistan Friendship Agreement. It's literally what it was called, the Soviet-Afghanistan Friendship Agreement. The Soviets had allied themselves with uh, the Afghan leader, Nur Mohammed Taraki. And when the Afghan Communist Party overthrew Taraki, the Soviets invaded to reestablish a more favorable government in Afghanistan. That didn't work. The Soviets spent 10 years fighting their war in Afghanistan before they finally retreated in 1989. And of course, we repeated the exact same mistake in Afghanistan in 2001, and we were stuck there for 20 years. This is the history of Afghanistan. I mean, the Brits lost to Afghanistan in 1842, which to ground us is when Abraham Lincoln started his political career as a state rep in Illinois. Uh, The Brits lost again in 1880 and again in 1919. You know, there's a reason why Afghanistan is known as the graveyard of empires. And then, of course, in 2003, our Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, promised that an invasion of Iraq would be short. Uh, the, the Gulf War in the 1990 uh, lasted five days on the ground. I can't tell you if a, the use of force in Iraq today would, would last five days or five weeks or five months, uh, but... 
but it certainly isn't going to last any longer than that. We fought the war in Iraq that Don Rumsfeld crafted for eight years. The history is just riddled with wars like this. We entered Vietnam to fight communism. And like the war on terror, it's just impossible to win a war when your enemy is an idea. Now, when I was researching what our leaders were saying to each other about why we went into Vietnam, I was sickly mesmerized by this phone call between President Johnson and Richard Russell. Richard Russell was the governor of Georgia in the early 1930s, but he then served in the Senate for 40 years. And at the time of this phone call, which was on May 27th, 1964, Richard Russell was the chairman of the Senate Armed Forces Committee. Our war in Vietnam lasted almost 20 years, and this phone call was between the President of the United States and the head of the Senate Armed Forces Committee two months into the Vietnam War. Pretty good, are you, Mr. President? Oh, I'm got lots of trouble. I want to see what you... We all have those. What do you think about this Vietnam thing? What, what I'd like to hear you talk a little bit. Well, frankly, Mr. President, if you were to tell me that I was authorized to settle it as I saw fit, I would uh, respectfully decline to undertake it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a damn worst mess I ever saw, and uh, I, I, I don't like to brag. I never have been right many times in my life, but I knew we were going to get in this sort of mess when we went in there, and I don't see how we were going to ever get out without fighting a major war with the Chinese and all of them down there in those uh, rice paddies and jungles. I just don't see it. It's, uh, I, I just don't know what to do. A quick side note, um, I got that audio from the Lyndon Johnson Presidential Library. Those are the kind of artifacts that are stored and kept and available at presidential libraries. So it's one of the reasons why they're important and, uh, and neat. But back to um, Vladimir Putin. You know, he, he told the Russian people that he invaded Ukraine to quote-unquote denazify Ukraine and to stop Ukrainian aggression against Russia. Now, we know for certain this isn't true. Vladimir Zelensky is Jewish, and many of his family members were victims of the Holocaust, so we can safely assume that Zelensky is not sympathetic to the Nazis. So we're left to guess at Putin's true intentions. But it's my belief that Putin just wanted to capture Ukraine as his first trophy in the United old Soviet Union. I mean, he thought he could roll straight into Kiev, be greeted as a liberator, install a new government, and restore the Soviet Union. Now, if my belief is true, I'd have to ask myself, well, why now? Why do it now? Perhaps he looked at our politics and saw us consumed and stalemated in bitter infighting. Perhaps he saw America's own government almost overthrown by violence on January 6th. Perhaps he saw the UK and the EU at odds over Brexit. Perhaps he saw the UN consumed and maybe in his view distracted with global warming. Maybe he just looked around and saw how authoritarianism was taking a stronger foothold on the planet. Those governments around the world exercised their power to control the COVID pandemic. Perhaps COVID just isolated him for two years and he distanced himself from all the confidants that had the ability to warm him against ill-advised moves. Maybe he's just 69 years old and wants to see the Soviet Union together before he dies. We don't know. What we do know is that Vladimir Putin miscalculated every bit of his invasion. He thought it would be quick. He thought he could get away with it. 
It's the same story made by nearly every single aggressor in modern history. And winning a battle is a lot different than winning a war. We also know for certain that Vladimir Putin was counting on a superior Russian army, a weakening of the West, a weakening of NATO. You know, instead, NATO is proving to be the most important alliance in the world. Sweden and Finland are discussing ending their neutrality and joining NATO. In a stunning reversal, Germany is shedding decades of pacifism and looking to build Europe's largest military. I mean, there is a lot to unpack here, but Germany's pacifism was not only their government's stance since World War II and the fall of the Berlin Wall, but it was required by the German people as a way to rectify the worst German war atrocities in history. But now this new military buildup in Germany has a nearly 80% approval within the country. This is clearly the exact opposite of what Vladimir Putin was after. And no matter what ultimately happens to the territory of Ukraine, every single Ukrainian is going to hate him with every fiber of their being for the rest of their lives. But we're now entering an inflection point in the Ukraine-Russian war. It looks like Russia and Ukraine are entering a stalemate. And in war, stalemates just end up being the most vicious and brutal and bloody battles in our history. I mean, I'm thinking about some of the bloodiest battles of World War I, like the Battle of Verdun. It lasted nine months and claimed 300,000 soldiers. The Battle of Somme. It lasted five months and had over a million casualties. I mean, these were brutal battles for fights over inches. So with war, there are only two things you can count on with absolute certainty. First is the death and destruction and misery that makes war so evil. The second is uncertainty. And the uncertainty is about to get really bad if we transition from pushing to pulling, which is what I'm worried about right now. And right now the whole world is pushing. We're pushing unprecedented sanctions onto Russia. We're making that country as isolated as North Korea. We are pushing billions of dollars in arms and aid into Ukraine, into this fight. We are looking for homes and for support for the 4 million Ukrainian women and children that have flooded into neighboring countries. Each one of those countries wondering if they're going to be next. We are pouring troops into our NATO allies, standing ready. Now, Russia is also pushing. They're pushing to capture Kiev. They're pushing to seize Mariupol. They are losing troops at an incredible rate, while the Russian people are kept intentionally blind on their government's actions, but they're growing support. And Vladimir Putin seems to be moving with Hitler-esque resolve here. But there will become a point when it starts to pull. And that's the point where the war takes on a life of its own. And it's not hard to see how this could spin out of control. I mean, how much longer is the West going to be able to hold on to our existential desire to avoid World War III while they watch buildings full of children being shelled? I mean, at this point, it seems that Russia's strategy is a war of attrition, which I think makes it impossible for Russia to win. I mean, from a military strategy standpoint, I really don't see any benefit to taking over a city that is utterly destroyed. I don't see how Russia is going to hold on to any territory where they have been so ruthless and brutal that they have guaranteed that every Ukrainian citizen is going to hate them to their very core for generations. And how does that help the war effort? 
But how much longer is Europe going to absorb millions upon millions of refugees before their people and their governments decide that this influx is unsustainable? You know, what happens if Russia drops a tactical nuclear weapon from an airplane just to prove they could do it? What happens if it's on an unpopulated area? What happens if it's on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant? What happens if we then launch our F-22s and F-35s into the sky to close the sky of Ukraine and we shoot down a Russian pilot carrying those nukes? What happens if Russia attacks our ready positions in Poland? What happens if they accidentally launch a missile or drop a bomb on an American position? What if it's on purpose? You know, one of the most troubling developments that I have been following over the past few days is that Vladimir Putin's popularity within Russia and the Russian war effort appear to be skyrocketing north of 80%. Now, of course, Russia has put extreme restrictions on opposing the war effort, so who knows what the real numbers are. But we do know that propaganda as a tool is very effective. And a populace that is hungry for more war is never a good thing. But it is not a surprise. You know, Ralph Bunch warned us 70 years ago that war only begets the conditions that beget more war. And now we could get to a place with Vladimir Putin's popularity rising so much that the actions of Vladimir Putin don't have to mesh anymore with the benefits to Russia. Because if it's affecting Putin positively, he might not care what happens to the state. There are innumerable ways that this conflict expands outside of the Ukrainian borders. And the whole world is pulled in. And at that point, we will very quickly get to a place where nobody wants to be, where the whole world will never be the same again. This is Vladimir Putin's war. And the only thing I can conclude at this point is that the world will never forgive Vladimir Putin for this game of nuclear Russian roulette. Ladies and gentlemen, War may sometimes be a necessary evil, but no matter how necessary, it is always evil, never a good. We will not learn how to live together in peace by killing each other's children. The bond of our common humanity is stronger than the divisiveness of our fears and prejudices. God gives us a capacity for choice. We can choose to alleviate suffering. We can choose to work together for peace. We can make these changes, and we must. Thank you for listening to Unchanging Principles. Special thank you to Matthew at the Carter Center for the audio of my grandfather's Nobel Peace Prize lecture. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, and consider leaving me a review wherever you downloaded this podcast. And tell your friends. There are many ways that we can help the Ukrainian refugee crisis. Two of my favorite programs are the World Food Program at the UN and UNICEF. You can visit my website at unchangingprinciples.com and reach me at josh at unchangingprinciples.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening. There is a peaceful solution called the Peace Revolution. Now let's take back America.
Now let's take back.